welcome to Insight, the insurance news podcast hosted by me, Andrew Sorcox. In this week's edition of Insight, I give a fleeting impression I know what I'm talking about, but don't worry, it's fleeting. According to Oscar Wilde, to lose one CEO may be regarded as a misfortune. To lose two looks like carelessness. What does this mean for the fourth QBE CEO in two years? He also said, there is only one thing in the world worse than being talked about, and that is talking about business interruption test cases. And even I challenge anyone to find a link between the great Irish poet and the Africa member forum, which was held last week. Hello, everyone. On our panel today are our illustrious chairman, Terry McMullen, managing editor, John Deeks, and deputy editor, Wendy Pugh. Good morning, Terry. Good morning. Are you a fan of Oscar Wilde? Indeed, I was in the in very young days. Yes, yes. A great writer. Hello, John. Hello. You've been looking into pet insurance, John. How many pets do you have? Well, I've got two dogs and I, I have two ducks and I did have five chickens, but now I've got two chickens thanks to a neighbourhood fox. Oh. <laughs> oh. Is that covered? Uh, no. And good morning, Wendy. Good morning, Andrew. What's your stance on pets? My stance on pets? Well, yes. yeah, fine if you want them. <laughs> All right. So QBE's new group CEO, Andrew Horton, is in the country and cracking on with the job. John, you got the exclusive with him last week. What are his key priorities? Mr. Horton was very careful not to sound like he knows it all already. He's going to take the time to get to know the business, its people and its partners. Coming from UK-based specialist insurer Beasley, he knows QBE well as a former competitor in the European and US markets, but he's less familiar with the Australian operation. That said, he clearly has some early thoughts. He wants more stability in both strategy and the leadership team. He singled out the US as a market where QBE has been particularly inconsistent in terms of entering a line of business and pulling back. And he thinks there's potential for growth there. He also wants to consider growing in the local personal lines market. QBE has a reasonable position, but nothing like the scale of Suncorp or IAG. Mr. Horton says he's a builder and he wants to look at each part of the portfolio and think about how it can grow. And he reckons Australia, the US and Europe can work together and share insights and products more than they have in the past. In terms of industry issues, he singled out climate change and insurance affordability, as well as people and culture as areas where he wants QBE to be a leading influence. Well, Terry, that sounds sensible, but is it enough? Well, you know, it, it's always hard to tell right at the start when a, a chief executive is, is talking but not detailing. He really needs time to get that together, I suppose. QBE hasn't had an all too easy time of it over the past few years. But the former CEO, Pat Regan, did, did put it on the track of rationalisation, and, and I suspect that Andrew Horton will continue that. The issue for QBE in the local market is how to grow, and I was interested in his interview with us that he sort of wondered aloud about why QBE isn't competing with the other leaders in the personal line space, and that's probably because his predecessors saw more potential in foreign business opportunities. And I note that he wants the, 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 all the various divisions to work closer together and find similarities they can exploit. But, you know, that's all, all very general and I'm not quite sure how easy that would be to make happen. Let's see how they go. Now, for once in this podcast, I did some research. If you include Interim Chief Richard Price, by my reckoning, that's four CEOs in less than two years. 
Do you want to care to speculate on that factoid, uh, Terry? Well, as you said before, you know, one is one is a, a, a bad thing. Two is just a downright carelessness. Four is God knows what. QBE has been through quite a bit of change at the top over the past few years. And look, some of it was due to hashtag me two issues that I, I don't need to go over again. Vivek Bhatia left the Australia Pacific job to take up a very big opportunity elsewhere. And as always happens with new CEOs, there are always changes around and, and under. So every company goes through personnel changes at top levels when a new CEO comes on board. Look at IOG, for example. I mean, Nick Hawkins has recruited the former local CEOs of Zurich and Chubb. So it's it's just a normal progression of new ideas, new leadership. You're going to see change. Um, I think that certainly one of the, the big things that uh, Andrew Horton will be working on is stability at the top end. All right. Well, never fear, listeners. I won't make a habit of researching. I'll leave that up to our experts. Wendy, you're an expert on this one. The business interruption case is finally over, but sadly, it's not the test case we were all waiting for clarity on. Well, I guess uh, this uh, one that settled last week um, uh, involved Caffeine uh, Oakley in Melbourne uh, called the Vanilla Lounge, um, which had a COVID um, lockdown-related business interruption claim declined by Vero. So last week that claim was settled and the, the federal court order shows a judgment was settled in favour of Vero. There was no costs order, but Suncorp says it will contribute to the other side's costs given the, the industry-wide significance of the case. Um, but this, this outcome follows a, um, a, a judgment in December last year on, on an element of the case um, and it looked at the links between the federal biosecurity declaration as cited in the uh, exclusion clause and the fact that the uh, cafe was shut down by the restrictions in, in Victoria and sort of the causal issues there. Um, and both sides said there were uh, positives that could be taken away from that decision, but it, it still comes down to uh, individual policy wordings and circumstances. But Suncorp says the court accepted its argument that the Biosecurity Act exclusion um, applied broadly for losses connected with COVID-19. John, remind us where we're up to on the test case and how this fits in. Well, it, it doesn't really fit in um, in that it's totally separate. It's to, totally, it was a totally separate proceeding. I guess maybe it was influenced slightly by the test case. I don't know. But on the test case, nothing much has changed really since our last update. The appeal hearings in the federal court on test case two are over, but we're still waiting for a ruling. And when that comes in, we'll have to wait and see whether the losing side wants to take it further to the high court for one last roll of the dice. Remember the first test case, which is over, focused on out-of-date wordings in exclusions and insurers lost that. The second test case, which concentrates on whether cover was provided under a range of different wordings and scenarios, went insurer's way in the first instance, but the claimants, as we know, appealed. Well, Wendy, you also listened into an AFCA member forum last week. What are some of the key issues raised for insurers? Firstly, um, on um, a business interruption, actually, they said uh, AFCA is ready to quickly move to resolve uh, claim disputes. So they're waiting in the wings once that uh, legal clarity is there from the, from the test case. They also highlighted that claims handling, you know, is regularly one of the most complex 
complained about issues in general insurance and it was the, the cause of the most complaints two years ago and it was up near there again last year. And it sounds like they're bracing for a lot of complaints in the current financial year, particularly with the shortages of parts and building materials and labour and, and with those issues um, made worse by COVID at the moment. Well, we also recently discussed Gallagher's report, which had some worrying insights on claims handling. With an active disaster season impending and issues with supply chains, this could be a bad combination for uh, for the industry, couldn't it, Terry? Yes, it could be, particularly as we, we should expect that some of these catastrophes are going to become more intense. Supply chains are always a problem for insurers after a major catastrophe. Material prices go through the roof, there's, there's shortages, um, tradies' rates suddenly quadruple. It's a fact of life, really. It's been a, certainly around in the industry as long as I can remember. I, I once concocted a scheme with, with a CEO in our industry who shall remain nameless as it was a very long lunch. But we decided we'd build a series of warehouses in northern Australia, just inland of areas that were commonly hit by catastrophes, and would fill them with fill them with building materials like tin and timber, and then just wait for the next catastrophe to come along, because with the inflated prices charged for materials, we'd make a fortune. Didn't happen, of course. I guess that's why you're a journalist and not a multi-billionaire. There must be that, Andrew. Must be that. Well, John, there's a new entrant in the pet insurance market. Who are they, and what are they hoping to achieve? Yes, yeah, so this is an insurance offering from Pets on Me, which is a website which primarily deals with things like pet minding and dog walking and things like that. Uh, Pets on Me says the Australian pet market has bucket loads of potential, and that take up of insurance is only about 10% of pet owners. And that compares poorly with take up in the UK, which is more like 40%. It says that while there are many brands out there, the pet market here has been dominated by one underwriter, Hollard, and that it's time for a shakeup. It reckons it can grab about 5% of the local market. Pets on Me Insurance is underwritten by Pacific International Insurance and distributed by Pets on Me as an authorised representative of Steadfast IRS. On a side note, why are we talking about pet insurance? None of them seem keen to sponsor it, and it seems quite a niche area. It is a niche area, and Hollard has, has made a real push to be the number one underwriter in this area, and you do have to wonder why others didn't see the same potential. But, I mean, their potential is the key word. There is a lot of potential when you think about the number of people that own a dog or a cat and how much unforeseen problems can cost you at the vet. And then it's the liability side too, if your dog injures another animal or person. It may not be as big a market as home or motor, but it certainly could be a fair bit bigger than it is at the moment. It's previously been described by Roy Morgan as a major growth opportunity for insurers. Well, if Andrew Horton is listening, maybe there's an opportunity for him. Terry, why do you think pet insurance market is dominated by just a few underwriters? Well, it's always interesting to hear a, a, a new entrant to a market like this coming in with, you know, all the answers. Uh, <laughs> let's wait and see. Uh, it's not that easy to disrupt a class of insurance like pet insurance because it does require quite a bit of specialisation. And I don't think it's all that easy. Look, the whole pet industry works in, in the, this strange way. The, the Mars family, for example, dominates the pet food business. It sells many different brands. 
and we don't notice or care where they come from. Hollard has done the same with insurance. It white labels pet insurance to a range of organisations under a myriad of names. This new guy is, is, is waving the I'm really different and better stick, but we'll have to wait and see. Why the slower take-up than the UK? Um, pet insurance isn't cheap and it's limited in what it delivers, uh, which reflects the variety of risks at play, I guess. From the discussions I've had with pet owners over the years, many people don't see it as a necessity and they don't foresee their pet becoming seriously ill or something that's going to trigger the policy because there are many exclusions and they'll, they'll handle it when they get to it. So I don't think it's going to be, it, it will ever be as hugely outrageously popular as it is in the UK where they're really quite strange about pets. Well, moving on from one niche area to what seems like another. Wendy, why has the ICA published a report on coastal hazards? Well, they commissioned a report last year to look at um, actions of the sea, um, and there has been confusion over what is covered and what's not. It got a lot of attention, particularly after the storms a few years ago that affected Sydney's northern beaches, and there were those pictures of, um, you know, an in-ground swimming pool sitting on the rocks below and housing foundations exposed and... So anyway, so this report emphasises that this is going to get worse um, and there needs to be more effort to get inf information together about uh, the risks. And at the moment, there's sort of data and information held in all sorts of different places. Um, and it also says that governments at all levels will probably need to uh, spend about $30 billion on coastal protection measures over the next 50 years as a result of uh, climate change. Um, so this, this report is really just, uh, it's raising a, awareness um, and highlighting sort of what the, where the industry can offer assistance and, the, and sort of the limits to that. Well, Terry, when you insured your range of beachside mansions, um, you wanted all eventualities covered. Why can't the industry provide cover for this kind of thing? Because the land my beautiful beachside mansion sits on, what kind of fantasy trip are we on here? Is it risk of being undermined by actions of the sea caused by rising sea levels and more intense storms, which probably are triggered by climate change? It's a very real risk and something your insurer is all too aware of. So we're going to see a lot more of this issue in coming years, I think. We tend to, to focus on the things that happen around the cities and the helicopter shots of the, of the swimming pool being washed onto the rocks. But the, the fact is that uh, this is happening all over the country and really it's, it's a, a massive problem and I don't think the insurance industry has any solutions to it and nor should they really try. It's just a, a risk you can't insure. Good point. Well, that brings us to the end of this week's Insight podcast by Insurance News. Thank you once again to our panel, John Deeks, Wendy Pugh and Terry McMullen. Enjoy your week and thank you all for listening. If you have any questions or comments, please email us at editor at insurancenews.com.au. We value your input. You can read all these stories and many others at your leisure at insurancenews.com.au. You can subscribe to the Insight podcast on iTunes, Spotify, Acast, on all your favourite podcast platforms now. We look forward to catching up again next week.